Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Selene Castrovia lives in the past, and that's not a bad thing. The award-winning author has focused on exposing the concealed truths about our nation's history. In her most recent book, The Founding Mothers of the United States, Selene shares the hidden but impactful and poignant way women contributed to the making of America. Aimed at young readers, it's number five in the series about the American Revolution. Book number one, By the Sword, tells the story of a Long Island teacher turned soldier, and it was named an International Literary Association recommended book. Revolutionary friends, General George Washington and the Marquis de Lafayette, received the Society of School Librarians International Book Award honor and the California Reading Association Eureka Nonfiction honor. It was a book list top 10 biography for youth and was also designated Best Children's Book of the Year by Bank Street College. Melt, Selene's gritty teen novel about domestic violence, has won six awards and honors. Luna Rising, her debut women's novel, won the Book Excellent Award for Chick Lit. And then there's her self-improvement book, 10 Steps to Finding Happy, A Guide to Permanent Satisfaction. Selene is also a public speaker. Her audiences include children, teens, and adults. So let's meet and get to know Selene Castrovia. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a great honor. Selene, what made you think you could write? <laughs> I, I just knew I could write. It, actually. I held a pencil and I knew that was going to be my tool. I, d- I didn't even know why at the time, but I just, I don't, I know some people don't always know what they're going to do, but I did. And it is a real, it was a real gift and it was a real saving grace. So in your own head, were you creating stories that meant something to you and that you not necessarily were finding as a little kid growing up? Um, I think I was making sense out of my life through stories. Um, I had, I I mean, nobody has an easy childhood or maybe some magical people do, but we all have our things. And I just created these stories in my head and I I did write, I even wrote some down. They didn't, it was just sort of trying to work out life and trying to understand, make sense of, of, of the inexplicable. So it was a little challenging growing up. It was, it was, uh, yeah, both my parents were um had 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 uh, mental challenges, so it was uh, uh, it was a tough time. Mm-hmm. But they so, love, you know they love me, but it was what can you do? So was this activity of yours or this quote talent of yours encouraged as you went through school? No, <laughs> a funny story is I loved reading so so much, and I was in second grade. They told us what level book uh, reading level we were, and it, only the top readers were allowed to order from the Scholastic Book Club. And I was so depressed. I mean, I, I just couldn't believe I wasn't allowed to order books, which is an absolutely ridiculous thing. But I showed them because now I've written a Scholastic book. <laughs> so. This stayed with you as you went through school, as well as obviously going to college, because I read that you got an MFA. A couple of people in my family encouraged it, but only as like something fun to do, but never as a viable career. I was always told you could never make it as a writer. You you can play around with writing, write down your things. You know, they, they humored that, but no one ever thought that I could actually be a writer for a living. And it, I didn't go get my MFA for, for 10 years. Uh, Uh I graduated from NYU and then I had my family and then I went for my MFA. 
So what did you think when you were at NYU, which is also my alma mater, that you wanted to do when you graduated? Well, I I did want to write, but I, I majored in English. I really didn't understand uh, that you could t- major. I don't know if you could major in writing then or not, but no one, it wasn't even a thought. No one guided me. I just sort of like went along and took English because I love to read. And when you graduate with an English degree, there's really not that much to do except teach, except I really didn't want to teach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I opened a business. I opened a creative gift basket business and uh, that, that, that handled my creativity for a little, for, for a while. Uh, I was I was making gift baskets, which is kind of funny. So when did your writing actually take off, A, and B, what was the attraction to American history? Well, I, I started writing again in early, probably about 2000. I actively started pursuing, uh, really, I, was, I just started writing a novel. And uh, it just hit me like I have to write again. I have to, you know, I have to do it. And I had my kids, and and I wanted my kids uh, to see me doing something I loved, that really loved, like my pursuit. It, it, I think that's so vital to show our children to have passion. And the baskets were fun, but they were not my passion. It was just doing it for somebody else. Somebody's I, words are my passion. Words are like le mot juste by Flo, when Flaubert says that. It's like I must find le mot juste, the most perfect word. And, and that's what I want to do. It was showing my kids that I was happy doing something I loved. And, and then I, by accident, I went to visit a friend. I stumbled upon history by complete accident. Now, I will say, when I was young, I thought that history was so boring. When you're taught it in school, a lot of times it's just like the, you, you memorize the person's name, the date, the battle, this and that. Where is the personal touch in this? Why would we care? So It's not sexy at all. No. No, and, and, and not caring in the least, no emotions. So if, if you told me when I was a kid that I would be writing about George Washington or Martha Washington as I am now, I would have said, you are kidding me. They are boring and I would, not, I would never write about them. But that's funny because fate has a different thing. I, th- I think we're led to things. I don't think there's ever really an accident. I went to visit a friend who had just moved from Setauket on Long Island and he said he missed it. And I said, why do you miss it? And he said, it's very historical there. I'm like, well, that sounds boring. And he said, no, George George Washington had a spy ring that he operated from there. I'm like, what? I didn't know that George Washington was involved with spying. And I definitely didn't know it was involved on Long Island where I live and grew up. No one ever mentioned to me this the whole time I was growing up that there was anything to do with George Washington or spies or anything like, like that on Long Island. So I became completely impassioned just with that sentence. And I went home and I started researching it. And I found out about um, Washington had a spy ring on Long Island called the Culper Spy Ring. And that one conversation pushed me into the history. And that was it. I I just, that was it. I never looked back. I, I just fell in love with it. So as you started to do this, there were all these other big surprises that came your way. That was the first of apparently many. That was like, holy shit, I didn't know that. Yes. We hear about the Marquis de Lafayette a lot, uh, especially with Hamilton. I was just going to say thank you, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yes. I am very appreciative of Hamilton because it really brings passion to a lot of people, especially young people. It's not entirely accurate, especially when it comes to to Lafayette. Lafayette really, really saved us. We would not be a country without Lafayette. But the question is, why did this French kid, he was a teenager, come here to help us. And it's just this amazing story about, talk about passion, right? He felt this passion to help us and he had to come help. I mean, that's amazing for a 19-year-old. 
try to get someone to do that now. A 19 year old. <laughs> They're too busy stuck on their phone. <laughs> so that, that was just one of the, that was, and I have, I have a 21 year old and a 26 year old, but, um, but he paid for his own ship, even though the King told him, no, the King forbid him. He, he, he defied the King. He came here, risks being arrested, spent a month at sea. And when he got here, we told him we didn't even want his help. We slammed the door in his face. And, but Washington really appreciated him because he really liked Washington. Washington was getting abused left and right because he, they, they were losing. And everybody said, oh, Washington, do something, do something. Well, what can you do when you don't have enough men, enough guns, enough clothing even? But Lafayette adored him. So they, be, they really entered this uh, father-son relationship. And um, it was a little quicker for Lafayette than it was for Washington, but it did cement. And, and really, Washington called him his son. And it's a beautiful story. I wrote it because I just fell in love with the idea. Like, how, how could this happen with this young French teenager? And Washington, really, really, in the battle for his life, the battle for the country, they become, it's, it's, it's a father-son love story. It's beautiful. So that was definitely one of the highlights of my writing. Was it obvious to you that this would be a story for the younger reader as opposed to me? I think a lot of adults do enjoy my books because my books tell you the complete story and an average reader who's not, who doesn't have a lot of time, who's on the run, could read one of my books and learn the complete story in only like 15 minutes as opposed to, you know, they're going to get the, the truth. My books are so well researched. I mean, I, I consult historians before, after, during, I mean, these books have all the facts down. So adults do enjoy them, but they're marketed for children, sure. And, and I think it's very important to write for children because we have to show children the value in history. That, that we, we, just, we must learn history. It's valuable to learn where we came from. But we're really learning about people. We're learning about ourselves when we learn about history because people don't change. So they did things for exactly the reason why we do things. We're worried about our freedom. We're worried about money. We're worried about love. Whatever they do, we did it. They did it. And if we don't learn about these people, we're just going to repeat the same mistakes. That's why they say history repeats itself. It's not from the event. It's from the people. So in other words, your series is more nuanced and richer in a sense, as opposed to just all the facts, ma'am. I think there's a lot of great details in there that are are nuanced and and really will make readers pause and say, oh, and and want them to, to even say you and I might be might read the same thing and we'd be interested in something different about it. Something will strike us. So that will lead both of us to research that thing. It might not be the same thing. But the idea is you, if you don't know about something, you'll never want to learn more about it. So you learn this one thing and you dig deeper. You might choose one fact. I might choose another. But there's a lot of facts to choose from in my books that, are, that will really be amazing and have that aha moment for both adults and children. So this first book... A, how long did it take you to write? And B, was it a slog to get it published? My first one was By the Sword, which is a quote from Benjamin Talmadge. You, you might not know who Benjamin Talmadge is, or you might if you watch the series Turn, which is about Washington spies. Benjamin Talmadge was Washington's chief of spies. He's the one that organized the Culper Spiring. He's from Long Island. And he wrote a memoir about his experiences at war. And he wrote about the Battle of Long Island which we don't often hear about, uh, and maybe because we lost it so terribly. We, we lost it in a couple of hours. And if Washington didn't retreat all his men across the East River and save them in one night under the cover of fog, we would not be a country, which I think is Washington's greatest moment. 
Because he crossing the East River, he saved all his men and saved the day to fight another day. Crossing, we always hear about crossing the Delaware. Well, what did he do when he crossed the Delaware? He slaughtered a bunch of drunk and sleeping men on Christmas night. He had to do it. It's war. But isn't it really noble to save all your men? He was saving them. They would have been put to death because they didn't want to take prisoners. It was easier to just kill them. So that's what my, the book is about. It. Benjamin Talmadge described it. I wanted to research the spies when I, when I read his memoir. I wanted to know about the culprit spying. That was my passion. Remember, my friend told me that story. And right. I wanted to know. But Talmadge said nothing about the spying in, in, in this book because he was protecting certain members did not want to be known and really never were known until much more recently, 50, 60 years ago. But he did write about being an untried soldier. He was a teacher. He gave up everything and went to, and, and went to the battle. This is not uncommon. We didn't have an army then. Everybody that was a soldier at the beginning of the war walked away from their families, walked away from their jobs or everything. They were not trained and they went over there and then they fought. I mean, it's amazing when you think about this, right? This dedication. And yeah, sure. He, yeah. And he got there and he realized oh my gosh, I have to look someone in the eye and shoot at them. And he was appalled by the idea of taking a life. And I said, wow, that is something that all soldiers must face. We don't really talk about that type side of war. We talk about rah, rah, where we do it, you know, and it's all valid, but every single soldier has to go through that moment when they have to look someone in the eye and shoot at them or be killed. And that is appalling. That is such a psychological thing to deal with. That was what made me want to write that book, that moment, that line. And then he talked about being in the battle. He talked about waiting to die. They all thought they were going to die. And he talked about being re retreated. He was in the rear guard. So he was left behind till the end. He never thought he'd make it out alive. Only got down to the water because a fog came and covered them in daylight. It was a miracle, this fog. And he gets pushed onto a boat. He's one of the last people. They're doing this all silently, by the way. 10,000 men in silence. They put cloth on the oars. So because, because the enemy was right nearby, if they heard them, that would it. They would move in. <laughs> they get across the water. I mean, this is amazing. We complain like, oh, it's raining outside. Oh, no. You know, <laughs> right, right. they get across the water and he realizes he left his horse behind, his beloved horse. And the horse was important to the army because they did not have a lot of horses. OK, he requested permission and got it. And, and a group of men agreed to go with back with him. And they went to rescue the horse and almost got killed by the Hessians getting the horse. But they got the horse. He saves his horse. Washington saves the day. I mean, it's a beautiful end to a book about war, like a double, a double happy ending. By the sword really was the trigger. No pun intended there either. Yes. And yes. how received was that? Did you have trouble publishing it? What was that process like for you? I don't know if you've ever heard of Highlights Magazine. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. So I, I, they, they're really, really supportive of writers. They have a lot of um, classes, uh, mentors. It's like week-long uh, uh, seminars. Uh, there's a lot going on with them. They're very, they're so, so supportive. And I really owe the beginning of my career to them. I got a scholarship to Chautauqua in upstate New York, and uh, they had like a week-long um, writing conference. And I, I had a mentor, and my mentor happened to be the editor, the woman who became my editor. She loved history. She was a history editor. And they paired me with her, and she worked with me on it. And it was exhilarating, but also extremely difficult. I mean, it took it took at least a year. It's only a picture book, right? But it took at least a year to wow. get it in order. Because a picture book is actually the hardest thing to write. You know how we think, oh, they're short, they must be easier? No, because it really just has to be perfect. First of all, you have to know what to leave out. To the point, but emotional, 
So you have to engage the reader. You have to have a beautiful, powerful narrative, but in very, very few words. So it's quite the challenge. And in nonfiction, it has to be accurate. Okay, so sometimes it's not fun. It's not sexy, as you said, like to put the truth is not always sexy. It's like you have to find a way to make it sexy in the middle of the book. So it took about a year to get the contract, but I will say I worked with her that whole time. I was really lucky. And then I met an editor in the process that believed in my story. We have a new book coming out actually in 2022. We're moving to the next century, Civil War, about the real end of slavery, which nobody really knows the real end. Well, they might know it, but they don't talk about the real end of slavery. So that's coming out in 2022. Talk about timely. So I've been, yes. By the Sword came out in 2007, but I worked on it with her before that. And I met her back then. So probably I met her about 2005, four. And then I've been working with her ever since. So what is the genesis of the founding mothers? And what is it that you found out that I didn't know? The the trick in history to writing or reading about history is really to delve. You have to just keep digging, 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 and just assume you're going to find the answer. And park yourself in in, in the archives, in the library archives. Yes, Yes, I did actually go to the Library of Congress uh, to research this book which I love. I don't know if they're even letting people in there now, but oh my gosh, it is a thrill to go to the Library of Congress and sit there. It's just amazing. But you actually can do a decent amount of work just on your computer. I'm so grateful they let me really tell hard truths about people because some of our founding mothers and fathers were slave owners, and this is upsetting. But I think it's important to acknowledge these things happen. For example, Martha Washington had a, had a, had a slave named Ona Judge, and she, she escaped. And the Washingtons pursued her for years and years. They, they wanted her back. They, they had 300 and something enslaved people, but they wanted this woman back. So this is a pretty um, dark thing. It really makes me think differently, Washington, to be truthful, uh, really upsetting that they would pursue this poor woman. She got to be free. She eluded them, but she had to be on the run for the rest of her life. And I just think that's horrible. There's no such thing as being a kind slave owner. Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton, her family were notorious slave owners in in Albany. And I found a letter. They had an enslaved person named Diana who they recaptured and they put her in prison. And the letter, so this poor woman did not, she wasn't able to escape like like Ona Judge. And and she was just thrown into prison. And, And who knows what happened to her after that? There's only this one letter. So I have no idea what happened to her after that. Which, see, that's what I mean. Like, I just found, like, I searched and searched and found this little, this, this letter that maybe meant no one really would, you have to read the letters. The letters don't always tell you they're going to have this information. So you just have to slog through, I think you mentioned that, you have to slog through a lot of information you may not right. need, but you don't know you need it or not until you read it. So I found, I, there was a lot of in- interesting things, but there's a lot of really great things too. There's a woman named Mercy Otis Warren, they called her the conscience of the revolution. She was writing things uh, to try to, to get us to gain independence years and years before we ever sought independence. So she was kind of like just, just putting out little feelers and trying to get into people's emotions all along. But women really weren't um, acknowledged as writers then, so she didn't even use her name. So she was really amazing. There was an enslaved person named Phyllis Wheatley. I don't know if you've heard of her. But she was actually enslaved and published as a poet, a young, young poet. There was a tea party, not the Boston Tea Party. There was a, the women had a tea party called the Eddington Tea Party in 1774, a year after the Boston Tea Party. And a woman named Penelope Barker organized it. 51 women 
signed the petition that they would no longer use tea or clothing from the British until, until it was no longer taxed. And they didn't. They made their own clothes and they sent the petition to England and signed their names on it. The huh. Austin Tea Party, they hid their names they disguised as, as Indians. But, but the women, they were willing to take whatever punishment came their way. They defied the king openly. It was pretty amazing. How many mothers are in this book? There's seven women, like main uh, chapters, but then there's a lot of other women where I write paragraphs in the back about them also. So probably between 15 and 20 altogether. And so is this required reading in classrooms around the country? I hope so. Scholastic is so amazing. They've, no, well, they've been around for a million yeah. years. This is what they do. <laughs> yes, it is. So I, I hope it will be well read. Um, people are certainly excited when I, when I talk about it already. People are very, very excited because it's not that we've never heard of some of these women, but, but to shed a new light on them, to look at them in a little bit different way. When some of them we have never heard of. Some of them, there's a woman named Nancy Ward who was a Cherokee and, and she helped, she was giving information to the Americans to warning them before they were about to be attacked because the Cherokees were working for the British, but she wanted peace. She, it's not that she was specifically pro-American. She just wanted peace, you know? Huh. She, uh, and, and so she was working, she was going against her own people. That's dangerous. And she did this all just, she really is one of the main reasons why we were able to get, in the end, we had to get down to Yorktown and she arranged a treaty so we, with, with the Cherokee so we could take the path down to Yorktown and have that final victory. When going through school, you learn the basic facts about the revolution and the Civil War. Nothing particularly fascinating except the same old, same old, so to speak. Yes. I know it's so annoying when you think about that because like, there's so many amazing stories well, I tell the same thing over and over again. I don't, I don't get that. I really don't. So you write this series of books and that pretty much takes you through the American Revolution? It's No, not really. I mean, there's definitely still t- stories to tell. Um, it's not really in sequence to write. It's, it's not a sequence of anything. It's just, um, it's just reflecting on things I already learned about. I actually wrote the Lafayette book after I wrote a book about uh, Benedict Arnold and John Andre, who was the British spy that worked with him uh, and was hanged. I'm fascinated by Benedict Arnold. And why does someone become bad? He's like a real life Darth Vader. He was our greatest general. And so why would he do this? And, And it's not a simplistic answer, which I love. I love, I love a psychological portrayal of somebody. So I wrote that before Lafayette, but, uh, then, uh, my, my other publisher is called Hawkins Creek. And they asked me to do Lafayette first, and then we were doing Arnold. So that's what we did. So, but it's really at the same time, pretty much. You know what I'm saying? They're like two sides of a coin. Maybe gotcha. slightly a little bit later is Arnold, but Arnold was around for Lafayette. So these things all overlap. It's not. It's not about the sequence of the revolution. It's just about telling different psychological portrayals uh, of why the people did the things they did. So tell us about the transition from this nonfiction and these history books to melt this teen novel about domestic violence. Yes. <laughs> Where did that come from? It's actually about my boxing coach. He, he started telling me about what his father used to do. His father used to uh, terrorize the whole family uh, at dinner. Like he would, he said, he looked at me in the eye and he said, my dad used to shove a gun down my mom's throat at dinner in front of me. And I'm like, Oh my God. And he's so, Lord. I know, so he said, look, 
I know you're going to write my story. Just go write my story. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll just write your story. Okay. (laughs) So it's just so easy to just go home and write another story. So um, I came home and I I hear voices. I don't alarm you, but I do hear voices. (laughs) And uh, at that time recently, a voice said to me, Get the book, The Wizard of Oz, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. So I always listen to the voice. Luckily, it, doesn't, it tells me only things about literature, you know, and writing, nothing, nothing else, luckily. And so I bought, I bought the book and I started reading. I'm like, oh, this writing's a little stilted. It doesn't really hold up. No offense to, I mean, I love The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> the writing was not thrilling. So I, I kind of stuck it on my coffee table under, on a little shelf underneath. And the voice, I came home at that day and the voice said, pick up the book pick up the wizard of Oz. So I picked it up and I opened to the line where um, they just came back. The witch was melted and they came back in with the, with the broom and the, the, the keeper of the gate said, how did you get this broom? Did the witch give it to you? They said, well, she could not help it for she is melted. So I wrote down on a piece of paper, I wrote, she is melted. And then I wrote, she is melted. And then I wrote melt. And I knew I just knew what the whole story was going to be. It's not a retelling of The Wizard of Oz, but it, it's it's um, a reflection of The Wizard of Oz. Like everything you learn in The Wizard of Oz, like for example, the theme of no place like home. Well, what if home is the absolute worst place? Okay. Right. So in Melt, that's the case for Joey and his family. So the opening is called No Place Like Home, and it talks about he just goes. It's it's first person. And uh, dual first person between Joey and his girlfriend Dorothy, and he tells this whole story about what happens when his father comes home. And then the girlfriend, she has no idea what's going on. So we, we know because we're listening to Joey, but she doesn't know that she's walking into like this really dangerous situation. So it's kind of it's a thriller and a love story. I just started writing it, and it just was there. And the Wizard of Oz was the backbone, and I used quotes from the Wizard of Oz, luckily public domain, to to sort of show the theme that of each each passage. So it poured out of you, in other words. It really did, yeah. And considering that this is a teen novel, is it intense? It's tough. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's very intense. You really don't know what's going to happen to the last line. And I will say, look, it poured out of me. Of course, you have to fix it. It's not, nothing pours out. I don't want anybody to think, oh, writing just pours right, out perfectly. Right, of course, of course. But you, find, you write out the basic, you know, premise. You, you pour, yes, you pour out the emotions and then you fix it with like better words. You look up, I have this thing called the writer's flip dictionary and I look for that Limoges juice all the time. It's just part of the process, which I love. It's just, it's a thrill of the chase. Well, I'm so enamored of people who write, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, because that is just not easy for me. It's not a natural act. Talking is more of a natural yeah. act, but Let's now move over to Luna Rising. What was that about? And that's now for a different audience. Yes, uh, that was my first women's fiction. I've actually adapted it into a pilot, which is being shopped in Hollywood. I have a, I have a shopping agreement. It's actually about me. My name means moon goddess and moon in, in Greek, Selene. And so Luna also means moon. So um, it's me, but it's fiction. She's a mother on Long Island who... Um, who comes into her own. She gets divorced um, in a very kind of a harsh way. Well, this happens to a lot of women. We we get married young and then we have unfulfilled lives for whatever reason. And then all of a sudden we realize, hey, I want real love. I want, I want, you suddenly want to live. You want the life you were deprived of. You didn't even realize you were deprived. You just suddenly wake up. Mm. It's, it's like a coming of age when you're in your like 30s or 40s. It's about this woman that she has these two children, uh, but she... She wants love and it's, it's not easy to get it. 
it's funny in that she goes on these crazy dating things uh, and she meets a guy who is just not good for her at all. And so it's about trying to negotiate a relationship that's just non-negotiable. It's kind of like a Jennifer Weiner type of a book. Ah, sure, sure. So was writing it very cathartic for you? See, that's the thing about writing, okay? Everybody thinks it's cathartic. (laughs) It's really not. Because while you're writing it, you're kind of reliving the pain. But once you, and it's very, it's really hard to write for that reason. It's like really like, it's like opening a vein and bleeding out on the page, especially if it's in any way personal. Now you're taking your clothes off, aren't you? Yes. But once you have it all out on the page, then you can really look at it and say, and you could really analyze it and say, okay, you can go, you can literally bring it to your therapist. I've brought my writing to my therapist. (laughs) (laughs) It's been ultimately cathartic, but not while writing it afterwards. I think it's really interesting, if I can use this word to describe you, that your writing, your choices are very eclectic. Yes. <laughs> Does that surprise you? I, I would say that I'm eclectic, I guess. I just cannot be boxed in. I don't know why. I, I know people have very lovely careers writing that one type of book, but I did not plan it in any way. These things just came pouring out of me. That, like I said, milk just started writing itself. Uh, the, I wrote a novel called The Girl Next Door. I dreamed it. I woke up and it just, I said, Jesse's dying. And I said, who's Jesse? You know, like, I've heard that from authors. Like, this so. is what happens. Yeah, and, you know, I've so heard that. I write about the human condition and it doesn't really matter whether it was you know, in 1776 or now because we are all the same. Human, we're all the same, suffering the same things, but our hearts never change. So then that that really is a great segue to 10 Steps to Finding Happy, mm-hmm. <laughs> A Guide to Permanent <laughs> Satisfaction. Uh, how was that born? Or was that just so obvious to you that it was the next step? No. My oldest son was visiting me and he said, you know, mom, everybody loves self-help books. Write a self-help book. That's It's obvious. So you have to write that. I'm like, is it obvious? I'm like, what would I even write about? I will preface this by saying I do a lot of public speaking. I do a lot of book signings. I, I mean, I of course not now, and I hope we can go back to it, but I used to do all the uh, conventions. I used to be invited to do shows. Uh, I was invited to things all over the country. So I've met a lot of people and many people write to me afterwards and say, you know, you said this to me and it changed my life. And I'm like, I don't even remember that I said that, but yay. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I wrote it and I thought it was complete. And I have a friend who's a psychologist. And I said, would you look at this and give me support for it? Because you ask people to endorse things. And she said, look, I, I can write another side to this. I want to, I want to be your co-author. And I'm like, oh, all right. Hmm. And this is how I roll. I just, I just accept things. And I just, I said, okay. And I tell you something, co-authoring is not easy, but after a while we each found our groove and we each wrote our own things. And then it was much better. (laughs) So that was how that came about. It's very well received. People that read that, oh, I get such thank you letters. To know that you've made somebody happy, literally, it's thrilling. That's what what yeah. life is all about. We just don't travel down that straight road from point A to point B. Exactly. Exactly. I have always said that reading is not a passive activity. No. And when the book is over, it's like, oh my God, I'm not going to be with Marie anymore. <laughs> I know. It's it true. Be. It's like Crazy. a loss. I yeah. agree with you. Yeah. What's on the burner for you? What, what do you have up your literary sleeve? Well, like I said, I have a book uh, called Seeking Freedom, Ending Slavery in America that's coming out from Calkins Creek in 2022 with an amazing illustrator named E.B. Lewis. 
Have you ever heard of Stavian Glover, the, the tap dancer? Of course, of yeah. course. So I wrote a picture book biography about him that's coming out um, with Holiday House, also in 2022. Laura Freeman, another amazing illustrator, is uh, illustrating it. I feel so fortunate to have these two amazing illustrators because it is hard when, when you write picture books. Mm-hmm. So I'm thrilled that those are coming out. I'm always writing a lot of things at once, but I love it all. You're making my head spin. I don't know how you juggle all these balls at once. Could you have ever imagined that this is what you'd be doing? This is what you'd be sharing? Don't you think it's crazy? In a way, like I knew I was a writer. I really did. From the moment I held the pencil, I just Yeah, but knew that's it. that's yeah. okay. So you knew you were a writer. That doesn't mean shit. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Does it work for you? Is it that you can connect with just so many people on so many different levels? Yeah. It is pretty amazing. So, Selene, I just feel very fortunate that you took time out from your clearly very busy (laughs) life to have a conversation with me. I think it's just great. I appreciate you having me. This has been so much fun. So thank you so much. Well, keep us in the loop about uh, Selene Castrovillo's activities, okay? And uh, maybe there'll be a part two down the road, assuming you have time to do that. (laughs) Well, thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.